You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Jari Bolander talking about how to deal with teenagers who are ungrateful. If you have a teenager who's unappreciative, you work so hard all day long (laughs) at work, you manage their entire life, you do everything for them, and they don't really seem to appreciate any of it. In addition to taking care of everything in your own life, you also keep track of everything that is going on for your teenager. But are they grateful? Do they tell you how much they appreciate you all the time? Maybe not. Jari had a similar situation when his wife was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, Eventually, he was running her business and his own business communicating with everyone in the family, managing all of her medical procedures and medications. And one of the things that he found really difficult in the situation was that he was working so hard, pouring out so much of himself and his wife was complaining. She didn't really seem to be appreciative at all. As he worked through the situation, he developed a lot of insights that translate remarkably well to what he's going through now in becoming a step-parent to a 14-year-old girl. What can we do as parents if our teens don't appreciate us? All of that and more is coming up on the show today. Jari, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I read through your book, Ride or Die, Loving Through Tragedy, A Husband's Memoir. It's really an emotional book here. Not your first book, I think. So I'm curious what uh, what is really personal um, this one and and what inspired you to write it and and why you want to why you want to talk about this yeah sure so yeah no it's not my first rodeo as i say <laughs> i normally write business books which are not that emotional and honestly not that hard <laughs> i literally this is what i do for a living is i I'm at a growth agency for B2B companies. So I write all the time and help people tell better stories. So yeah, this one uh, is my first memoir. Uh, comes out September 5th, 2023. Uh, and it's about my late wife, Jane and I's uh, relationship and the challenges, struggles, joys, and sorrows of her terminal illness, which was leukemia. A lot of people ask me, like, why would you write such a book that's so personal and emotional? One of the things I just am always compelled to do is write to understand the world and to make me feel a little better. It's very cathartic. It just allows all this stuff rattling around in my head to like be put on the page. And The other thing is it's less, uh, to me, it's less scary. Like the more I talk about it, the more I write about it, the more people know about her and what happened and the beauty and sorrow and joy and all the craziness. It just makes it less scary. And I also really wanted those that are going through something like this to not feel so alone. I felt really alone, especially as a man trying to deal with this and being a caregiver, full-time caregiver and a full-time running her business. So it's just like, oh my gosh, how can you make two full-time jobs? <laughs> no, I don't know where to begin, to be honest, right? Um, which I'm sure a lot of parents feel <laughs> that way as well, especially you know, schools coming going back in. If you've got kids that are going into like junior high or high school, it's just it's a how do you how do you go, how do you even cope, right? What yeah, it was really um it really feels like a really honest book and you talk a lot about kind of the about your sort of 
struggles or um, feeling like, yeah, like there's so much to do and you're constantly kind of underappreciated. It really, uh, yeah, it was, it was refreshing to see that. And it feels really, really human. That's what I tried to go for. Partly the reason why it's so such as written so well with, with all that emotion and meaning is I had a lot of really good editors, one of which was a friend of mine, uh, Leslie Watts, who is actually the editor in chief over at the Story Grid. She was my first editor. And she just helped me really refine the story and really like structurally go through the process, right? And then I had this other great and, and another editor friend, Stacy. She um, was um, was really good as well. But uh, the eventual publisher of the book, which is called Spark Press, the publisher is uh, Brooke Warner. She's also an editor. She's the one that really focused in on you need to put you in the book and not be so distant. Um, and I struggled with that. I fought her a little bit on that, to be honest. Love you, Brooke. Thank you so much for uh, continuing to push me to do to be better. But uh, that was, I think, the pivotal turning point. People had told me, hey, put a little more of you into it, but it's really scary, as you can imagine, like really bare your soul and, and try to really capture the essence of the experience. You know, and, and I think so many men, especially come from a male perspective, obviously, sometimes struggle to communicate what they feel or they don't feel in sort of safety, people to know what you're going through. I figured if I wrote about it, there would be no excuse not to talk about it. <laughs> so there we go. It really is true, though. I, I wonder how after after kind of going through this experience and now writing a book about it where you are with that uh, in terms of kind of talking about this as it gotten easier and what have you learned about just uh talking about being vulnerable or talking about the hard things yeah i mean every time i talk about it it gets a little easier and it gets a little less scary um and these are topics that not a lot of people have a lot of experience with i mean how often does your spouse die how often does like a kid or your I mean, your parents typically the stage of events right is my parents die and then i die right and then i don't have to worry about my kids or what have you right i would say that uh for me personally every time i talk about it it gets a little easier I feel like it's a little bit less scary. I get a little better at understanding like what the meaning is. I, it seems to help a lot of people. I mean, I've gotten so many comments about like, oh, you're so brave for writing this. And I'm just like, brave. I, this isn't brave. What what Jane did was brave. What I did was I just was dedicated and showed up, right? I like was in it to win it. I mean, the reason why the book's called Ride or Die, um, actually, I have to thank Brooke again for the for the title. That was not the original title. Uh, was it was really a sort of what it meant when you said your wedding vows, like in sickness and health till death do you part. This is sort of what that that's the manifestation of that, right? So it's like how do you communicate that? You can say the words, it's when you put them into practice, that's the hard part, right? When they're tested, yeah. When they're tested, right? <laughs> that testing part, the what does it really mean, the dedication, the commitment. I mean, I'm not brave. I was committed. Uh, Jane was brave. That was her name. Her name was Jane. Jane was brave. She faced her demise with honor and grace and with a loving kindness, especially to me. That is the reason why I could write this. It's the reason why I found love again. 
It's the reason why I'm not you know, still drinking alcohol. <laughs> you know, it's like I've been sober for the last five years. So it's like, I don't know, it's just a gift, right? And, and the gift is so powerful that why would I not want to share the gift? And even if it's scary, and even if people are going to give me a hard time, which no, no one really has, but even if people are going to be like, oh, I don't know how you could do that. It's like, I got a gift, a true loving gift, selfish, selfless gift. And gosh, I got to share it. Like, why would I not? Has that like manifested in other areas of your life as well, or being more open or sharing more? of your struggles in in other areas too? Yeah, I would say I was generally pretty open book, generally. Like I say what I mean sometimes to my detriment. <laughs> I'm opinionated. <laughs> uh, I don't like, uh, I am not a fan of bullies in general, but I'm really like people that you know, take advantage of situations and or, I'm not a fan, right? So I've always been pretty open to challenge that. And like, I, I think as men, in general, I mean, all people, but men in particular, we have to be more compassionate and show more compassion to others. Like we have certain strengths and weaknesses, weaknesses, but also some capabilities that require compassion, right? It just, we just should, that's, I think we'd be better men if we had more compassion. But yeah, I mean, going through this, like every day is a gift. Like I wake up, I'm like, I got another day. Like it could be the worst day. <laughs> At least I have another day. And honestly, it's up to me to to use that day wisely. And yeah, I have all the same problems. Like I, I got a job, work's frustrating. There's all sorts of like, gosh, do we really have to go through this BS, right? At the end of the day, it's like, oh, well, I had another day to do something. Jane never had another day, right? She she died when she was 36 and has, has no more days. So I think it's up to me to not only realize that every day is a gift, because it is, time is precious. It's the only thing we can't print. You can print money, but you can't print time. <laughs> we don't have enough time right um and live live every day I, it seems cliche right because everyone says says that but when you when you sort of see someone run out of days in front of you it, it it becomes crystal clear like i need to spend my time on worthwhile endeavors that hopefully improve the world i mean I think that's the other thing i i realized it's like there's a lot of strife in the world and there's a lot of challenges and struggles and i think instead of complaining about it I think we just have to do something. And I think especially as men, we should own what it is to be a man and like be, be better, like build better men, like just lead by example. Again, another reason I wrote the book, it's like a lot of times people struggle with trying to control their emotion or they come from really hard times or they're like deal with hard times. It's like, look, someone like me who generally biases negative and has a halfway decent attitude can get through it. I'm pretty sure you could get through it too. You may not think you can, and it may feel bad, but again, like, I think you just really have to just, just take it a day at a time and just be thankful. Gosh, you got another day on this planet. There's not very many of those. And we so often just throw them away. Yeah. I mean, you can't, or not everything is <laughs> rainbows and unicorns, right? Not everything is always going to be perfect, but Gosh, every day I live, I'm just like, man, I, I just got to get better at this. And then also, I think we need to have more compassionate to those that are less fortunate, those that through no no fault of their own, no circumstance of their own. I mean, look at you know, Jane's example. I mean, she got leukemia, like not her fault, like just ha literally just happened, they say, right? But still, it's like, I mean, 
But I think the other thing is it also puts life in perspective. I mean, the 15 months that she was sick, we lived a lot of life in 15 months because I think she realized I may not have much more time. We didn't know. We didn't know if she was going to die or not. But I think that was the other thing. It's like, what's the point? What's really the point? So. But what do you think that we could do as parents to raise kids who really have that that value of every day or really uh, appreciate uh, every every opportunity that they get to just to just be alive and experience this this life? Um, how, how it seems like so easy to kind of get just you know, stressed out about high school or whatever and daily stuff and drama and everything like that. As a teenager, you might not necessarily have uh, something like like your experience to put everything in perspective for you, but I wonder what you think parents could do to try to sort of instill some of that. I don't know if I mentioned, but I have a fiance now. Um, so found love again, which I think is also the message. Like you can be happy. You don't need to be miserable. You went through some hard stuff. Don't process it, be respectful of it, but your spouse, your loved one wants you to be happy. Believe me. And I want you to sit around and be miserable. Like, and if they do, then they probably didn't love you. And I'm sorry if that seems harsh, but who, why would why would they want you to be miserable, right? Um, and part of having a fiance is uh, she has a 14 year old daughter, <laughs> so I am a, a stepfather in training. I guess. Uh-huh. I'm so happy I found you. We found each other because I'm going to be reading through all this stuff. You know what I mean? So it's so. She is literally starting high school this week, right? She's a freshman. So the thing I've been learning, right, along the way, right, um, is it seems to me that there is a general lack of discipline and sort of standards of behavior. And it, it, and I don't, and I'm not talking about like corporal discipline. I'm not talking about like all the all the stuff. Like I'm a Gen Xer, so in the, eight, the 70s and 80s, all the shenanigans that happened there were pretty you know, like we got spanked. Like I'm not advocating that. I'm not. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm what I'm talking about, and again, what I've seen is that there's no like, what is the standard in which I should aspire to? And it's an aspirational goal. Like, what are the rules of, of the game? How do I interact with people? I saw an article the other day about Gen Z and like new in the workforce and like can't figure out how to interact with people. <laughs> it's like that's that's a problem, right? So I I would say that uh, as parents and teens, you know, you're going through a lot of changes, you're going through a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of new stuff. And I think as parents we just have to set the standard of proper behavior and you model that. Uh, I think that's the best way I can put it. My step future stepdaughter, tell her all these things. And she says, oh, it's cringe. And look, she's 14. She knows everything, obviously. right? <laughs> and and it's like, but I'm modeling what I think is the appropriate behavior in it, guiding her. And of course, talking with her mother about that and everything. But it's, I think the, the message I would say going through what I went through, and, and if you are a parent that's going through this right now, which is even more horrible, like I didn't have kids at the time when Jane and I were going through this. I think it's the setting the standard, having a high standard of behavior, performance, really like I expect you to be a good person and I and I expect you to do things that are appropriate for society. And that I think is very powerful because what, what, what I learned going through this is like when you have a catastrophic event in your life, like 
this disrupted our lives pretty severely. You never rise to the occasion. You fall to your training. Like constantly I'm stressed. I can't sleep. I'm eating too much. I'm drinking too much. I'm like not in a good position. So all of my actions would, I just regress down to what I, how I was trained. And thankfully, even though I grew up in the seventies with wooden spoons and, and licking, licking lead paint, um, there was a my parents held the standard of which to adhere. And they taught me and, and they weren't the most compassionate people, to be honest. But I think nowadays we just have to, it's really important to model the right behavior. One of the reasons I wrote the book is like, if you are a married couple and you took your wedding vows and one of you gets sick, this is what I think that means. <laughs> and sickness and health, that do part, like it's a pretty thing. So, and and I think getting back to the whole compassion thing I talked about before, I, I don't think a lot of people have, I mean, especially for teens, I mean, you're stressed out as a parent. You don't really have the perspective sometimes where you just want to get through the day. Oh gosh, we're running late. I've got my work. I mean, especially like working parents, like just, oh wow, single parent, like you guys are just rock star. How are you even going to deal with the world? Having some compassion and some actual dialogue, I think. I think the best thing that I've done is like, I'm just going to treat, like, I'm going to treat you as an adult. This is how adults act. This is the standard. And we're going to talk about it in a rational, reasonable way. And there's consequences to your poor behavior. You're making a choice. I mean, my fiance, Minerva, says this all the time. It's like, you're making the choice, not me. <laughs> it's like, choices are yours. You have this choice or that choice. Please make the wise choice. Um, and I just think that's just so powerful compared to how I grew up. Just do as I say, because I'm your dad. It's like, uh, Really? That makes no sense. I think it's more of a dialogue. I mean, this is dealing with a terminal illness and you have to make life and death decisions. You tend to really want to ask the experts and really take the information in and synthesize it in a very non-biased way as best you can. It's hard to because you, you have a vested interest, but I think it's the practicality of, okay, we've got two choices. What's the best choice? Also, something that I've been thinking a lot about with respect to your book is just, yeah, how sort of um, you're having your own life and everything to deal with. Now you're also kind of concerned with all of Jane's medical care and everything that's going on with her and managing that is a whole job in its own. And said, you know, being the like correspondence with everybody and family and friends and everything is a whole thing. And then now trying to keep her business um, <laughs> above, above water and keep everything running. And you're just like have so much going on. Um, and then also at the same time, she's sick and really um needs you and feels like you're not being there for her. And uh, it really felt just how so many um, parents of teenagers, one of the most common things <laughs> that uh, people tell me is how do I, how do I get my teenager to be more appreciative? They're just so unappreciative and I just do so much, but it really struck me that it, it may, it's not necessarily just a teenager thing. It's like this, your, your wife is in this situation where she's really needs support from you too. And those same feelings are are happening for you in this book. It really just got me thinking about that a lot because it's just such a common sentiment from parents. And I wonder just kind of, yeah, how you kind of ended up de dealing with that or co coping with that and how you think that translates. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a really astute question because it's the caregiver relationship between 
who you're caring for and you as the caregiver. And when that dynamic switched between Jane and I, like she was no longer my wife. I mean, she was, but yeah, that there's a passage that really stuck with me where you were talking about how kind of before this, we were this like power couple kind of conquering the world together. And then after this diagnosis came through, now it's sort of flipped and now you're taking care of her. Yeah. Everything is kind of um, turned on its head a little bit. I think the reason why what I've learned about it is as the caregiver, I have all the power and she was basically powerless. So that was super annoying (laughs) for her being a person that is um, very uh, type A person. So I think it's the caregiver has, has the power in the relationship and the person that's being cared for. The dynamic is more of frustration that I don't have autonomy. There's frustration that I can't make my own choices. There's frustration that why they don't know what they don't know. Some of it is manifest as, oh, I know everything. You're like, you don't know anything, right? But it's because they have lack control. I I think, I think it's the lack of control from the person being cared for. And yeah, I think you're right. And it's kind of one, one way to sort of, I guess, I don't know, feel like you have a little bit of control or something. Yeah. A little, I mean, the reaction is I need control of my own life and I have no control. I think the best way this was put to me one day was I'm I'm walking back into her, um, her hospital room. She's in chemo. She's been in it for like four weeks. I mean, it's just miserable chemo. Like, Like it's whole other level of hell. It's like torture, but you have to do it. Right. Cause or you die. Like, so you have a best bad choice. And I remember walking in and she just lit into me about you get to go outside you get to drink coffee, you get to do this and do that. And I'm like, I'm working to like, she had no appreciation for it. But then as I realized, oh, that's what she wanted. She wanted the control. She wanted to be able to leave the room and she couldn't. So she was just taking it out on me. You have the control and I don't. And I think I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I think the the teen parent dynamic is I have no control or I have a little control. I'm starting to realize that there's a world out there and I need to sort of like expand my horizons and I'm bumping up against this control thing. Yeah, like exactly. Like, and, and and that dynamic is very powerful. It's all a question of as the caregiver or as the parent, like how do I handle this who's developing into a, an adult, giving them the autonomy and the ability to make some decisions. It's going to give them a sense of their own autonomy. Like generally people want to be good at stuff. Like they want to be like proud of what they've done. But when it's so constrained, they're like, I don't know, how am I going to be my true authentic self other than just like, like, and you see this like adolescent boys as opposed to adolescent girls, right? Adolescent boys generally like can't stop moving. Like they're just fidgety. And and why is that? Everyone's like, well, they're just boys. We boys like, well, boys at that point have, have a, a performance enhancing drug called testosterone which is literally banned from Olympic events because it's a performance enhancing drug. So you've got all these kids, like you've got these young boys who've never felt this performance enhancing drug called testosterone. Again, it's banned. You cannot juice up on it. And all of a sudden they're like, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you, you were a young, young boy, even as a man, it's just like, it's just like, this is a, this is a power that you have to harness. You literally have to learn how to control it. You're just bouncing off. I don't know what this is, right?
strikes me that it's that same feeling that that Jane was feeling and you come in the room and you're drinking your coffee and you're going to work and you're taking the lift and um, as a teenager it's like oh well your parents are kind of doing that too they get to do whatever they want they're just going living their own life they're in charge of everything no one's telling them that they can't do this or what their rules are or things like that and just wanting so bad to have that control of your own life it's great that your parents are doing all this nice stuff for you and everything but it's kind of gets over yeah the, oh, the appreciation and gratitude gets overshadowed a little bit by and i do think i do think that kids appreciate their parents in general they do i mean right if you've got a, a good relationship with your kid i mean jane appreciated me even though she was really upset <laughs> all the time right but i think it's just again the dynamic of control the caregiver is in control of my life i have no autonomy I'm upset about that. And I have no way to express it other than to lash out. So then the question is, how do you mitigate that? And in Jane's case, there was no way to mitigate it. I mean, the only way she could go outside was to wear a respirator. And when you spray like cars, like right. it was and this and even, but when she was in chemo, she couldn't go out because the world would kill her. She had no immune system. But like when she was going through a bone marrow transplant, she wore a respirator. It's like a miserable thing. And she'd have to walk around with it. Right. So and you know, she didn't have the energy to want to go, but she couldn't go anywhere. Like, so I complain a little bit, obviously <laughs> she was sometimes not kind, but on average overall, she, she obviously handled it quite well, was very um, poised, um, very passionate, uh, very loving, just such a gift, like such a gift. I just hope that when my demise comes at the end, I have just as much courage as she did because she really, I think, taught me really what love is. I mean, that, that's the true, pure form of love. So it was crazy, but yeah, just got to remember that those lessons. It feels like uh, throughout the book, it kind of, as you mentioned earlier, it, it kind of comes back to the idea of the vows that you took uh, when getting married and sickness and health, death to us part, and kind of almost keep be being grounded in this promise that you made or this duty that you have to each other. It strikes me that that's a similar maybe promise or that you're making by bringing a child into the world. Is that Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. That's actually, huh. I like that. Yeah. I think you nailed it. Yeah. Maybe we can fall back on that as parents in those moments of unappreciation, kind of feeling like we're just doing so much and it's, hmm. <laughs> there's no gratitude or something. Huh. That's, actually, um, that's actually a really good point. I never thought of it that way. Hmm. Huh. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Like the parental promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, parent vows. Yeah. Honestly, it's a good, actually, that's a pretty good idea because I think, again, I don't know this. I don't really have much experience, right? So, N of one, right? Um, that would probably really level set. I mean, just imagine if you said to your kid, like, look, here's my parental promise to you. We're going to read this. I'm going to sign it or whatever. I mean, I mean, it's a little hokey, but, and then they have the kid prompt or whatever, like something that anchors in. When things go wrong, I mean, when you're married, you have the vows, like you literally like, this is the framework in which we're going to live our life within first order, right? Just imagine, I mean, it's actually really, maybe that would help a little bit. Like, look, I'm doing the best I can. This is my obligation to you. And you're like, oh, huh. maybe I think you're on to something. <laughs> hey. Yeah, try it out. Get some family vows going. Um, yeah, get us, yeah. drop us a, <laughs> drop me drop email, us a note. Yeah. Send us a, yeah, yeah. Get us on social media, see if it works for you.
what's going on uh, now as your uh, 14 year old uh, stepdaughter in law of I don't know <laughs> future stepdaughter future stepdaughter, stepdaughter. yeah what's uh, what, what's going on with all with you um, as she's kind of starting high school and are are, are things that you're worried about or uh, going through your head or what yeah well I mean first off her mother has done a fantastic job of raising a wonderful human right I mean she's in all her moments of teen angst. The core is strong with that one. Um, I think the thing that I worry about the most, and it's not even necessarily a worry, it's just how to navigate the world with her is like, obviously, I want her to be successful. I want her to find a fulfilling life. I, I want to be that positive role model, like, look, this is basically, this is what a man and how I treat her mother and how I treat the world. Like, look, this, this is what a good man is. I, 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 I aspire to be that good man that Mont Romain, right? Um, so it's just really a question of how to navigate that and, and put in put in enough of the guardrails so that she can bounce off of them and kind of find her own way because part of it is like, I can't just tell her. I mean, I can. I could be like, look, this is the world. But sometimes you have to experience that in a sort of a safe way. So put the guardrails up and have her just bounce around on the guardrails. I want to be the model of what a good man is. I take, I don't like the term like toxic masculinity just as a general term. I just think it's a silly thing. Like if you have that, then you must have the opposite, which is whatever we call it, positive masculinity. Just like you have femininity, you could have, I mean, like you have to have the duality of the world. The world is dual, right? Have to, like, don't tell me you can't say that. Like, and don't say that, all men are bad or that, that we have, everyone's got problems and we have things to solve. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you just don't, you can't just sit there and bash on people and expect them to be like, oh yeah, we're just going to fix it because you think we're, we're awful people. Like that's not cool. That's not positive. And that's not what should be. Again, the reason why I wrote the book was not, was partly to be like, <clears throat> in my mind, I think I did a good job being a good husband and a committed husband. If you're in that situation, in my opinion, this is what it's like to go to the end. And you could take that with what it's worth. And some people are ready for that. Some people aren't, but that's my interpretation and what not a lot of men talk about that. So, so yeah, I think I want her to have every opportunity. Obviously I want her to live a good life. I want her to have live a life on her terms. Uh, I want her to, whatever she chooses in a mate is someone that's going to love and care for her. I was just talking to a friend recently of saying his, uh, the, the most, he'll never forget the meanest thing his stepdaughter ever said to him, which was, you're not my real dad. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what, how, uh, I always feel like as a, like if that's the incoming step parent or it's kind of like just such a, it's such a weird line to walk and kind of wanting to, I don't know, be, be set, uh, like kind of set up that relationship in a more of a parental way, but, uh, I wonder how that's going for you. If you found anything that's helpful or how you're thinking about it. Yeah. Well, that, that conversation has not come up, thankfully. And I think part of the reason it hasn't come up is the way I handle the relationship is one of, I don't force her to call me anything. I don't like, I'm, I'm an, I'm an adult in your life because I love you and I love your mother. I'm here to help you. I'm like, whatever like it's your choice. I'm I, I, I'm in your life because your mother and I love each other, and now I'm in your life because of this situation. And and I feel my job is to earn earn that title. I I, I don't I don't. There's no ands ifs or buts about it. Like every day I got to earn that, and and not in the sense that I'm going to like placate or I'm going to be like be the be the good 
stepfather, whatever, like do all the fun things. It's like, I'm in your life to help you. My primary role is to protect you and guide you in the world. I'm not your biological father, uh, obviously. And, but I'm here and I love you and I'm here to help you. And you can complain all you want. You can scream and you can use all the excuses in the world, but I'm here and my job is to protect you and help you grow. I mean, like, I, I think I have a different attitude about this because I don't, I have no ego in the title. Like, I, you don't have to call me anything, Like, you have to respect me, right? But I, you don't have to call me anything other than either my name or what you choose to call me. I am here and these are the criteria. And again, the standards of respect, dignity, I'm, I'm going to try to impart on you whatever wisdom I may have in my been on the planet a little longer than you. So probably know a few more things than you do. But um, I think it's more for me, it's, I wouldn't call it equal relationship. I, I don't, I don't think that's the word, but I think it's more, it's just like a mutual respect. Like I understand the situation is different than you may have liked it. I understand that I'm not your biological father. I understand that uh, there could be conflicts in that, but look, I'm, I'm going to be here. We can either deal with that or we can fight about it because yeah. I, and I don't think we will. I mean, again, she's great. She's like, her mother did a fantastic job of raising, I mean, the core human is pretty solid. Like I just, it's every day a gift. <laughs> well, I'm glad your mom is a really good mother. <laughs> and I'm like, shoot into this, like, hey, I'm here. You know what I mean? Like mother's- 14 years of solid foundation yeah. here. Let's <laughs> yeah. just, let's just mean, kind yeah. of put a couple of bricks yeah. on there. I mean, just yeah. like, don't screw it up, right? It's like, okay, now what? how do I not screw How do I make this better or not screw it up, right? I, I'm just being a little facetious, but I think I just got to earn it every day. It's on me, honestly. I think it's on me. And- it's the, I think if, if you have that attitude, because they're, they're emotional beings, right? They're like their frontal cortex isn't fully developed. They're emotional. They've got all these hormones. They don't know what's going on. They think they know the world. They're naive beyond naive, like the situations in the world they've never seen. They're not confident. They don't like, they haven't made their stake in the world. Like you're older. Like I'm 52. I mean, come on. I've like lived life, right? I wrote a book about my dead life. Like not a lot that can phase me. Like there's really not a lot. Like, but you're 14. The world is just like, oh my gosh. You know, like, whoa, wow, this is crazy. It feels like it really parallels what we were talking about earlier with the powerlessness too of being a teenager. And it feels to me as we're talking like, wow, for blended families that it's even more kind of, it's like now this, now this just, um, person is coming into my house that I don't have control over. And now they have control over me. And now we're going to have to change things around here for this. Um, and uh, life is going to, is being different and it's not up to me kind of, yeah, it, it really feels like just more, more highlighting or kind of rubbing in how little kind of control or power you have over your own life or um, home life or something, which is just probably, probably really hard. Yeah. It's incredibly disruptive too. So, I mean, I think as adults, as the steps and as the parents, honestly, I think it's up to us to set the stage and the tone. And, and like, again, do you really have to be that draconian? Like, is it really like, I'm your blah, blah. It's like, really, do we really have to go down that path? Can't we just, because again, like, I think if you want to model behavior of collaboration, compassion, and other things, um, might as well start with that. Like, okay, look, we'll just talk about what the situation means to you. How do you, how do you want to handle this? I mean, I, I see no problem with that. Like, why would you not want to, the olive branch, so to speak, like just 
what's wrong with that? Like, is it, is it an ego thing on your part? Is it, that's the way your father or mother was when you were in a blended family, you don't even want, maybe you don't want to be in the situation. You don't want to be a step, but you have to, I mean, I don't know. Like I personally, the second Jane died two days later, I started therapy just to deal with it. So maybe, uh, maybe work through some of those things. Right. I don't know. I think it's fascinating, though. I like this idea. I think you had a really good idea. This whole like parent vow, kid vow. I mean, what a. I know some some families have rules and stuff, but I don't know how much of it is like one sided. <laughs> yeah, you will not right, talk right, back. Right. You will clean your room. <laughs> how cool would it be? If, like as a parent, I will do this for you. Oh, well, wow! I have a little control. Hey, here's, oh, here's what I'm I feel, promising to do. I feel yeah. heard. Yeah, maybe that'd help. I don't know. And also it's like you're opting into it as a as a kid that at least then you're kind of having some say and you're agreeing to it. It's not just kind of being like imposed on you. And I think a lot of that is really, really important. A lot of just feeling like we are we're at least a little bit in the driver's seat of our of our own life is really, really important. I think so. I think everyone wants that. Even a kid. I mean, adults, you're in your relationship. I mean, just imagine if you're in a relationship and dominant, right? Like you have no say. You must feel really bad. Well, your kids probably feel the same way. Again, it depends on the kid and the family. What the hell? Why do I know? Like, I don't know much about this stuff. I am stumbling along just like everyone. My experience with Jane and and again, to your point about the whole control thing, that's a really good thought because it's like, you're right. It's the lack of control and autonomy that has all this anxiety because I can't control my destiny. That would piss me off. (laughs) I'd I'd be like, this is horrible. <laughs> I don't want I this. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I opt out? <laughs> no. That's kind of what can't. prison is really or just yeah, when we well, take yeah. away all of people's um powering over their life and just say, "Hey, you exist on this schedule, live in this place, do things like this." That's called called jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you lose your dignity. I think you lose your dignity. And again, that's why would you want to do that? I mean, yeah, maybe it's just a question of finding that balance between obviously as a parent, I need to parent the, my kid and make sure that they're safe. But on the other hand, you want to build well-adjusted kids that grow up into well-adjusted adults. My guess, again, I'm not an expert. I'm just, and I struggle with this too, that maybe teaching them those skills along the way, modeling those skills may be probably a good idea. At least I'm going to try. I'm going to do the best I can. Might be a good idea. <laughs> Might be good. And I'm going to devour your website so I don't. One more thing that it got me wondering about, you mentioned uh, uh, earlier in the interview that uh, you really hope that if you're in a situation like this and when the end comes for you that you'll be able to um, have poise and courage like Jane did I wonder what what you mean by that or how how this whole experience has made you think about like how you want to be when you're having health problems and and just uh like any anything more specific kind of about um what what you hope that looks like yeah yeah um well one of the most powerful things that uh, I went through, um, wrote about it in the book. It's when someone, it was actually a 
social worker came into Jane's hospital room when she was having chemo. And she literally knocked on the door when we were in mid fight <laughs> about her maybe dying. And I'm like, I don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. It's bullshit. Not good. Nope. Nope. Sorry. Just don't want stop being so negative. And she's like, you got to make sure that you understand this. You have to have reality. And we're just, I mean, we are screaming at each other. Right. And this social worker came in and she, her credit. And I, I, I don't even remember her name. I, I think I, I, I think her, I made her name up in the book, but she's a real person. Um, for an hour and a half, she just walked us through. This is why Jari's upset. This is why Jane's upset. This, these, and she literally made us come to the conclusion that it is okay that Jane is talking about her demise, like she may die because she loves you so much. She wants you to be happy. And it's okay for Jari to be upset about that because he loves you so much. He doesn't want you to die. Now that seems so obvious. And you're like, duh, the dumbest thing ever. Like you really need, but it's not when you are in the mix and you're emotional and you cannot convey your feelings in a really like clear, concise way, you just struggle with, and, and what happens? You scream, you cry, you get upset. I don't want to talk about it. Like you, you can't, you can't, can't express yourself because it's hard to say to someone, I don't want you to die. I, you may die. And I'm just pissed off. And to the person dying, it's hard for them to say, well, if I die, I actually want you to be happy and I want you to find love again. And I don't want you to be miserable. How, what a gift that is. Like you can't imagine how much of a relief that is to hear because you feel guilty. Like your wife dies, you find new love. What am I supposed to think? Oh, am I respecting her her memory? How long am I not supposed to be happy? Is this supposed to be a year, two years? How? I mean, like, but when someone that you love says, I know this is going to be hard on you. You suck at this. You're probably going to drink too much. You're probably going to smoke too much pot like I did. I did all the bad things you're supposed to do. You're going to isolate yourself. I don't want you to do that. I really want you to be happy. And what? I want you to find love again. I want you to get married just in and itself, which seems like a simple thing to say when you think, because like, again, when you're dying, <laughs> you're pretty focused on like, I don't want to die. Right. I mean, it's natural. Like you're just fighting this urge to be like, my demise is, is imminent to have the courage, the fortitude, the love and the compassion to worry about your spouse. I'm worried about you. You know what? I'll be dead. I don't care. I'm worried about you. How are you going to do once I'm gone? That's the gift I would love. I mean, I hope, I hope that I can do that because Honestly, we're all egocentric. We're probably selfish. Most of us are. Like we're we're facing the demise. Why would I admit defeat? She didn't admit defeat, but she was very clear that she wanted me to be happy. That is the best gift anyone can give you. And I again, I hope. I just hope. I hope so much that I am not too looped up, too egocentric. You know what I mean? So that's that's what I mean. By that. I wonder also about that feeling. Yeah, from. From her end, or how hard it is to rely so much on people. Yeah, I uh, have a friend who's 75 and has uh, leukemia right now. He's kind of trying to decide about the bone marrow and whether he wants to do it or not. And every time I talk to him, he's kind of like, well, but I just don't want to really be a burden on my kids and my family. And it lowers your quality of life. And he's really kind of struggling with this choice. And your book really got me just thinking about that too and how. Um, how hard it is to put or how like you kept talking about courage i think it does take a lot of courage to um, put yourself in that position where you're you know, vulnerable and you're going to put your fate into you know, other people's hands yeah also also at a certain extent it's kind of like wow wow how much yeah kind of deciding how how you want your um the end of your life to be and everything is really the stuff that we don't talk enough about i think in our in our 
cultures. Um, I think it's awesome that you're that you're doing this, and it's got me just thinking more about it and having more conversations about death and end of life and how how we can, I guess, kind of yeah, remove some of the stigma around that and and create a conversation. So yeah, well put, well put. It's really important. Jari, thank you so much for coming on the show today, sharing such personal and and deep things about about your life, about yourself, about your um, lessons that you've learned and your philosophy. I uh, really, really grateful to you and uh, wishing you the best with the book launch. Thank you so much and appreciate you being having me on the show and the dialogue. Uh, we get to talk more about this. Just appreciate the opportunity it's a labor of love this book uh it's out really soon well i think probably right around when this episode comes out uh, um the book is launching in early september um so definitely encourage people to grab a copy and also wonder where we could send people just to to follow what you're up to or what you're doing are you on any social media or anywhere that you kind of send out updates about what you're what you're working on next or anything like that yeah i mean i'm on instagram just my first and last name. I've got jarrybolander.com, which is my author site. Not sure how I feel about that, but <laughs> it is what it is. My public is like, you probably <laughs> should do that. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. It's generally pretty easy to find me since I've got a pretty unique name. But um, yeah, just encourage people to uh, pick the book up. Let me know what you think. You know, it's really a labor of love. It's, it's meant to help those get through the challenge and struggles of dealing with a spouse or a loved one that um, is sick or has some challenge to overcome. Andy, appreciate your time. This has been uh, insightful and inspiring, I think would be the word. It's been a little fun too, <laughs> even though it's a little like. That's important to talk about. We got to talk about all that stuff. The book is called Ride or Die, Loving Through Tragedy, A Husband's Memoir. It's available everywhere. Jari, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate you, man. I uh, appreciate you too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Talking to Teens podcast. If you have any questions or just want to connect, you can always reach me by email, andy at talkingtoteens.com. We'll see you next time.